You're listening to the SSPX Podcast, and welcome to episode 28 of the Crisis in the Church series. Today, we're speaking with Father Jonathan Loop about religious liberty. This, like ecumenism, which we saw last time, is one of the major exports of the Second Vatican Council. By it, we are led to believe that someone's religion is their conscience, and no one else should tell them what to believe. But Father Loop will explain to us how, while this sounds very nice, is completely missing the mark on what liberty is and how the church has changed from its previous practice of religious toleration. If you'd like to learn more about this series we're doing on the crisis in the church or go back and revisit our previous 27 episodes, or if you want to support this project, please visit sspxpodcast.com slash crisis. Now let's turn to our conversation with Father Loop. Welcome back to the SSPX podcast and our next episode on the crisis in the church. And we are welcoming Father Jonathan Loop, the principal of Immaculate Conception Academy up in Post Falls, Idaho. And as we're recording this, we're in the middle of May, and I think this episode is going to be coming out later in, in June. But how are things wrapping up uh, at the school up in Post Falls, Father? No, thank you for asking, Andrew. In fact, uh, it looks like we're going to finish well, very busy this time this month of may i'm sure for anyone else who's involved with the school can sympathize that it tends to yeah. be pretty packed um with you know various uh, performances you know grading preparing for graduation so it's good i mean it's it's a healthy busy but it's certainly intense very good well thank you for all your work you're doing up there for the school father and thank you for taking the time to talk with us um we are talking today about religious liberty uh, and we have talked about religious liberty a few times in some of our other podcasts. We've talked about it in uh, when I was when we were talking with you about Americanism. We also talked we referenced religious liberty uh, when we were talking about the preparations for the council. Uh, our listeners may remember that conflict that happened between Cardinal Bea, who wanted to talk about religious toleration, and Cardinal Ottaviani, who wanted to stick to the church's teaching on religious liberty. So we've referenced religious liberty a couple times before. Uh, but today we're going to go into depth on what is religious liberty and how has this term changed in the church uh, over over the last 50, 60 years. So could we start, Father, with uh, an introduction into what the traditional teaching is of the church on religious liberty? Yes, for certain, Andrew. And just one minor clarification there. So the, uh, in discussing that conflict between Cardinal Bea and Cardinal Taviani, the, the more traditional term that, and idea, in fact, that Cardinal Ottaviani was trying to defend was, in fact, religious toleration, insofar as that implies that you're resigned to tolerating an evil that you can't undo. And we'll kind of look at that in just a second, very briefly. Right. I, I switched those. Sorry. Yeah, no worries. No worries. <laughs> and then the religious liberty, as it's been come to be referred to, is you know, certainly the more modern view. And it's an important topic, and I think it's in particular a difficult one for us Americans because in large measure we're deeply, deeply, let's say, used to uh, the modern approach to modern uh, our religious liberty. It's kind of normal for us uh, because we've grown up in a society that's completely shaped by that outlook. And whether we will or not, it really colors how we look at the question. And so it's a little harder for us to get a sense of that. And just kind of a little anecdote on that. Uh, a few months ago here at the parish in Post Falls, I gave a sermon in which I pointed out that as a matter of principle, 
the First Amendment to the Constitution, the one that guarantees freedom of religion and what have you, is in fact more displeasing to God than other such sins, even as grievous as abortion. And the reason being is that it's a more direct attack against his honor and more directly opposed to the first commandment, the, the chief of all the commandments. And one of our parishioners, who I think is a very upstanding man, um, could not fathom that that would in fact be the case, that in some way that the First Amendment would be more diametrically opposed to the divine law than something as obviously awful as abortion. And again, I mean, it's as a kind of a knee-jerk reaction. A lot of us are kind of, we're obviously uncomfortable with abortion, but on the flip side, we're kind of comfortable with the question of religious liberty. Um, and to come to, let's say, a very brief look at the traditional teaching of the church, so we don't mean to go into this in, in depth, but just to, to really get a, a little clarity, I'd like to begin by a quotation from a sermon given by Edward Cardinal P., who was a uh, very prominent bishop in France in the 1800s, who uh, was in fact profoundly influential on the mindset of St. Pius X. In fact, uh, for many of our listeners may have read the first epistle, uh, not epistle, but uh, encyclical of St. Pius X, A Supreme Apostolatus. It's a very beautiful encyclical. But it, for its part, is modeled deeply on the very first letter as a bishop of Cardinal P. You know, and so the St. Pius X would often read the works of Cardinal P. And in this sermon, um, Cardinal P. states the following. Hear the last words, which our Lord addresses to his apostles before ascending to heaven. All power has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Going, therefore, teach all nations. Note, brethren, that our Lord Jesus Christ does not say all men, all individuals, every family, but rather all nations. He does not only say, baptize children, catechize adults, marry spouses, administer the sacraments, and give a religious burial to the dead. Evidently, the mission he conferred upon them contains all this, but it entails more than that. It has a public, social character because Jesus Christ is the King of peoples and of nations. As in former times, God sent the ancient prophets to nations and their chiefs in order to reprimand them for their apostasies and their crimes. So Christ sends his apostles and his priests to peoples, to empires, to sovereigns, to legislators, in order to teach all his doctrine and his law. Their duty, as it was for St. Paul, is to carry the name of Jesus Christ before nations and kings and the children of Israel. And I think it's important to start that way because, in fact, Cardinal P is just, let's say, giving a very elegant expression to the traditional understanding of the church that Christ is meant to be the king of nations. And, for example, that the feast that we celebrate at the end of October is not some kind of pious fiction, but it's meant to express the reality that has to be incarnated in our countries, in our laws, and what have you. And, you know, it's, it's good in that context, I would say, to read as well the encyclical of Pius XI, Quas Primus, in which he discusses that feast and why he instituted it and what it's meant to express, which is that Christ has a real authority 
over not only all men individually, but as a social body. You know, each nation must be subject to our Lord. And that, we may say, is kind of spelled out in three major responsibilities that any nation has, um, and the government as a result of any nation has. And here one, I think, helpful you know, thing to read, uh, is, is, and it's available on the internet, is a speech that was given by Cardinal Ottaviani, whom we referenced just a few moments ago, called The Duties of a Catholic State. And it's a speech he gave in 1953 at one of the Roman universities. Again, he crystallizes the three major responsibilities of any Catholic state. Uh, The first of which is that um, the state as such is meant to give a public profession of the true faith. And that means, in in short, that all the hierarchy of the government from the highest, let's say in our context, the president uh, and the Congress to the lowest, publicly acknowledge that our Lord Jesus Christ is in fact God and that they take part in the church's worship. You know, let's say by assisting at Mass as a body and not just merely as private individuals like someone like John F. Kennedy or uh, let's say Joseph Biden currently does. And uh, the same would be true of the legislators. You know, people like theoretically Nancy Pelosi, um, and uh, other, let's use the term loosely, Catholic legislators being present as Catholics and as legislators and uh, partaking in that worship and encouraging all the members of the, of the government to do so. Secondly, the, the cardinal points out that it is the duty of the state to base its legals, its laws, its uh, moral laws on the gospel. It's not enough, let's say, to, to limit it to the natural law at best. And certainly, certainly the laws cannot be in any way uh, based on principles that are contrary to the, the divine revealed law, the gospel, let's say. Um, and uh, so certainly laws on marriage would have to be defended and according to the church's teaching, you know, not just because, okay, it's a natural part of the natural law, but because it's intended to be protected by Christ. And kind of as a part of that as well, the state would be obliged to, to work with the church on those matters that, let's say, overlap between the state and, and the church. Marriage being a very clear and easy example of that. And the other principal one, that often comes up and has been a huge battlefield um, over the last century and a half is the question of education. You know, the church teaches that the government really has to um, protect the church's right to teach and indeed be um, subservient to the church's mission in teaching. Um, concretely, that would mean in part that giving the church the lead and the initiative in setting curricula for schools, for oversight of, and supervision of professors, choosing who gets to be professors in schools, determining what it's the standards of, let's say, um, getting degrees at a higher level, that would be the ideal. Not to say that the state wouldn't have any interest and some input on the matter, but it would be following the lead of the church, not the other way around. 
you know, and again, in our context, that's, you know, you know, I, sometimes when I talk with my students about this, I say, okay, look, concretely what that would mean is that, you know, in the canon law of the church specifies that the bishop has the right to oversee and supervise any school in his territory. So mm -hmm. the local here in Post Falls, um, the bishop of the Diocese of Idaho would, in principle, have a right to go into the Post Falls High School and say, okay, what, what text are you all using? Oh, okay, this is a problem. That's a problem. And why aren't you teaching religion in this school? In principle, obviously, you know, right. concretely, that would never happen given the, the context, the, the habits and the points, the just the... Um, the prejudices of our time, but the church would say, in principle, that is the right arrangement. You know, whereas mm -hmm. nowadays, um, especially more and more in the U.S., although it's less of a case than in Europe, uh, the state says basically we have a right to supervise what goes on in your schools. You know, and if you are, let's say, going against the prevailing doctrines, then we might, you know, put some pressure on you. Mm. So that's the second major responsibility that is implied in this doctrine of Christ the King. And again, that laws be based on the gospel. And then thirdly, and this is one I think that's a, the first two we still have a difficulty with. You know, I would say I would, the average listener, I would say, would probably be a little uncomfortable with even the first two. But the third one, all the more so. Um, because here, a Catholic government, uh, to the extent that circumstances permit, has the responsibility and the duty to suppress false worship. And here we have to be a little clear on, because that can easily lend itself to a misunderstanding, and a misunderstanding that has been used by the enemies of the church to, let's say, really push the modern view of religious liberty. So what that means, um, precisely, is specifically to prevent... Again, when possible, and I'll clarify what I mean by that, to prevent when possible the public exercise of any false religion, whether in the context of any worship or in the matter of evangelization or proselytism, I guess we should more properly say, or publications of books or anything like that. Um, and for two reasons, primarily. So firstly, because in and of themselves, each and every false religion represents an insult to God. In one manner or another, it teaches a falsehood about him, and as a result, denies that he is the truth, you know, which is again an insult. And it's one of the reasons why, as a matter of principle, the First Amendment is more offensive than something like abortion, um, because again, it's a, more, it's a more direct attack on who God is. And the second reason is that the presence of these false religions is always a danger to the salvation of souls. Because man can be damned not only for moral faults, like, say, uh, sins against the fourth through the tenth commandments, but also for sins against the faith, um, for not accepting what God has revealed about himself. You know, it's in fact... Um, you may say the great scandal of something like the Assisi prayer meeting that uh, John Paul II initiated in, in 1986. You know, basically giving the impression that all these religions are fine and therefore leading people to either stay in them or maybe even in some cases to adopt them. Um, and that um, keeps souls, those, those false religions keep souls from God. So again, for those two reasons, firstly for the honor of God, for our Lord Jesus Christ, 
And then secondly, for the, the protection of, of souls. You know, the church has taught that. Now, again, like I said, it's directed against that public practice. And the church has never, ever advocated, let's say, using the power of the state, the sword, to forcibly compel somebody to accept the faith. Uh, St. Thomas Aquinas touches on in a number of instances. Uh, so, for example, in his Summa, in the second part of the second part, he talks about the virtue of faith, and in that context, he asks the question, should unbelievers be forced to believe? You know, should we do that? You know, since the, you know, the state should work with the church. And then he answers as follows. So, among unbelievers, there are some who have never received the faith, such as heathens or pagans, you know, unbaptized people, and the Jews. And these, are, and these are by no means to be, to be compelled to the faith, in order that they may believe, because to believe depends on the will. Nevertheless, they should be compelled by the faithful, if it be possible to do so, that they do not hinder the faith by their blasphemies, or by their evil persuasions, or even by their open persecutions. It is for this reason that Christ's faithful often wage war with unbelievers, not indeed for the purpose of forcing them to believe, because even if they were to conquer them and take them prisoners, they should still leave them free to believe their false religion, if they will, but in order to prevent them from hindering the faith of Christ. So, in part, of course, he's referring to the Crusades, but also just within the civil affairs of a Catholic nation, um, there is that understanding that, okay, look, the government has a right to prevent men who don't have the faith from openly you know, presenting that for the, for the danger that it entails. Um, you know, and, and so you get it, for example, he mentioned, I mentioned the Crusades. We normally associate that with the wars for the Holy Land. But there was also a crusade uh, in southern France, um, right around the time, in fact, the Dominicans were founded, against a heretical sect known as the Albigensians, um, who were uh, an interesting lot, and apparently very pernicious, and who um, were very aggressive in trying to turn people away from the faith. And as a result, there was a war that was waged, and again, it was understood to be just from these principles, even if there were perhaps some excesses in the conduct of the war, which is a different question. And again, the concept there is not necessarily to get the Albigensians or the Muslims to convert to Christianity. It's we are we are waging war against you because you are damaging our ability as Catholics to practice our Catholic faith. Correct. In large measure, yes. All right. Now, that being said, the church also has traditionally taught, okay, fine. These are the duties of a Catholic state. And as I said, if possible, to in the ideal circumstances, to follow through on those things. However, there are instances where that ideal is not possible, and we have to make do with uh, tolerating an evil. Um, and this is where the question of religious toleration has come up, and, and why I was saying that that was the traditional doctrine. And um, here, it's, you know, again, this is not something new, but in order to prevent let's say, a greater evil of one kind or another, or when there can potentially be some greater good possibly to be attained, then, um, let's say, false religions might be permitted to exist and even to act publicly. 
And again, I'll quote from St. Thomas. It's from the same question, a slightly different article. So human government is derived from the divine government and should imitate it. Now, although God is all-powerful and supremely good, nevertheless, he allows certain evils to take place in the universe, which he might prevent, lest, without them, greater goods might be forfeited or greater evils ensue. And here, I would think, the most clear and obvious example of this evil that God permits is sin. God could, theoretically, prevent each and every sin from occurring. And yet he does not, because in the end he can draw forth a greater good. A beautiful expression of that is in the Exultate from the Easter Vigil, where the church, it's a very striking phrase, says, O happy fall, O necessary sin of Adam, that merited such and so great a Redeemer. You know, because of the, the great good that came from it, we call it a good, necessary fall. Um, so that's the most obvious example. Now, St. Thomas goes on, Accordingly, in human government also, those who are in authority rightly tolerate certain evils, lest certain goods be lost, or certain greater evils be incurred. Thus, St. Augustine says, if you do away with harlots, the world will be convulsed with lust. It's an interesting thought. Hmm. Now, going to the, and after quoting St. Augustine, he, he continues, hence, though unbelievers sin in their rights, they may be tolerated either on account of some good that ensues therefrom or because of some evil avoided. The example he gives is very intriguing. Thus, from the fact that the Jews observe their rites, which of old foreshadow the truth of the faith which we hold, there follows this good, that our very enemies, the Jews, bear witness to our faith, and that our faith is represented in a figure, so to speak. For this reason they are tolerated in the observance of their rites. So in other words, he says, we, mm. at the time, we tolerate the Jews because they give testimony to the truth of our religion by, let's say, showing what was the, the preparation for our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he goes on saying, on the other hand, the rights of other unbelievers, which are neither truthful nor profitable, are by no means to be tolerated except perchance in order to avoid an evil, for example, the scandal or disturbance that might ensue, or even some hindrance to the salvation of those, let's say heretics, who if they were unmolested might gradually be converted to the faith. For this reason, the church at times has tolerated the rights even of heretics and pagans when unbelievers were very numerous. So, again, we're trying to avoid an evil, and he's, a, let's say, by perhaps you know, trying to uh, follow through on that duty of the state to suppress a false worship, that it might lead people to have a negative reaction to the faith that was unnecessary at that time. Um, you might argue that that's very much the case in our own day. Let's say, hmm, in a very hypothetical situation, President Joe Biden wakes up tomorrow and says, oh, you know what, I'm going to be a traditional Catholic from now on. And you know what? I'm going to follow through on all the traditional teachings of the church within every detail. And that, of course, entails, you know, this um, uh, defending of the faith, you know, in the public sphere. And as a result, I'm going to sign an executive order tomorrow forbidding all public expression of Baptists, of, you know, of Lutherans, whatever, you know, the list could go on. And only Catholics may practice openly. 
you know, uh, and besides the fact that that will never happen, um, I right. think just detailing that scenario makes it clear that there'd be huge and very negative um, pushback on that, which would do more harm than good. So now with that very, let's say, brief overview of the church's traditional um, teaching there, uh, I think we can turn to religious liberty as it's modernly understood. And in order to see a bit uh, more clearly both how it departs from that vision of the faith and how it has, in fact, played a large measure in more recent evils since the Second Vatican Council, where this modern view was more or less embraced um, by um, the churchmen, uh, especially through the document Dignitatis Humanae, um, which deals with this question. Now, just very beginning, and I think in a way uh, somewhat obviously, this modern understanding of religious liberty has its origins outside of the church. It's not, let's say, part and parcel of that um, religious uh, or theological patrimony which the church has had. And in fact, it has its origins really from some great enemies. And um, just to really give an overarching view of the goals of those who argue behalf, and we'll see two, I think, who are very important, um, we can say that they had two principal, or maybe even, in fact, we can simplify to one principal goal, which was to, to lower the purposes and the aims of politics. Um, in other words, generally, a lot of the thinkers of the Enlightenment judged that um, the traditional uh, Catholic uh, position on politics, and I could even add to that even the teachings of classical political philosophers such as Aristotle or Plato, tried to aim at a perfection that was too high for the average man and for the average society, and in fact would end up on both leading to greater evils than otherwise, and the failure to accomplish what they set out to do, in fact. Um, in a way, there's, there's a passage or a little phrase from St. Thomas Aquinas that they may be said to have um, taken to heart in a distorted way. He talks a little bit about the virtue of prudence, and he talks about the, the tendency of human beings sometimes, in fact, to make the best the enemy of the good and to aim too high. That does, in fact, happen in human life. And he says that can be very detrimental, and he you know, gives a little... Um, expression to, to illustrate that. He says that he who blows his nose too hard, you know, let's say to clear it, will oftentimes bring forth blood. In mm. other words, by trying to get rid of a small, you know, inconvenience, in the case of stuffy nose, we actually do a little bit of damage to the organ, like burst some blood vessels or something like that. And, um, and that, in a general way, could be, in a sense, that the program of these thinkers. So in generally, they wanted to try to prevent persecution for ideas and religious wars, as well as we may say to, um, to make politics more effective, to actually attain the goals it sets out for itself. 
Now, like I said, uh, I wanted to just briefly look at two thinkers who, each in their way, were deeply influential in that, that program, that, that policy of these thinkers. The first of whom is Machiavelli, who was an Italian living in the later part of the 1400s, early 1500s. A tremendously influential thinker. Um, and generally regarded as a, as a, uh, you know, in some uh, uh, some of our circles, as it were, to speak a little facetiously, as the devil incarnate, you know, because he's um, normally characterized as trying to separate morality from politics. And while I would say that's perhaps an oversimplification of his project. Nevertheless, it does capture this idea of trying to lower the aims of politics. And here, uh, he, uh, let me say that, broadly speaking, and again, this is just a, this in its own right is a simplification, but um, he aimed to try to make politics not aim at human perfection, whether we consider that from the point of view of saving souls or from the point of view of trying to make human excellence, perfection, and virtue the goal of politics. Instead, politics should be about, let's say, attaining the basic purposes of life. You know, let's say peace and a basic level of human prosperity. Um, Now, he explains his turn a little bit in the 15th chapter of The Prince, which is perhaps his most famous work. And he, he says in that chapter the following, It remains now to see what ought to be the rules of conduct for a prince towards subjects and friends. And as I know that many have written on this point, I expect it shall be considered presumptuous in mentioning it again, especially... As in discussing it, I shall depart from the methods of other people. As just a quick aside, when he says that, that it's been talked about before, and he's going to leave those ways of discussing it, it's commonly understood that he's referring to, let's say, um, basically all the writers of political tradition, you know, beginning with Aristotle, Plato, and going through with St. Thomas Aquinas, all these men. Now, to come back to him, he says, but... It being my intention to write a thing which shall be useful to him who apprehends it, it appears to me more appropriate to follow up on the real truth of the matter than the imagination of it. For many have imagined republics and principalities, which in fact have never been known or seen, because how one lives is so far distant from how one ought to live, that he who neglects what is done for how things ought to be done, sooner affects his ruin than his preservation. For a man who wishes to act entirely up to his professions of virtue soon meets with that which destroys him among so much that is evil, among so many men that are evil, is really what, how he means that. So what does that mean? Let me ask you, in fact, I mean, and it's hard, of course, to hear something read and then you know, kind of put it in your own words, but as best as you can, what would you take that to mean? Is he, is he trying to state that, that if, we, if we try too hard to 
to live at a, at a perfect level that things are going to fall apart? Yeah, basically that's entirely correct. And, okay. you know, the term there that he uses, you know, they've imagined republics and principalities. Okay. That is in a way, I think we can reasonably say a pointed reference in particular to Plato, whose principal work on politics is called the Republic. You know, at least that's how it's normally translated. Um, and there, you know, he's, the whole point of it is, okay, look, let's, let's really try to figure out the best society as much as we can. You know, and, and Machiavelli is saying the, even the purpose of trying to discern the best political society and therefore to use that as a model is a problem. Because by trying to be too perfect, as you put it, you're going to, um, you know, fall apart. You might, you know, as an analogy or as a comparison, you think of sports. You know, sometimes, you know, a lot of kids, when they first start playing sports, um, they'll start trying too hard. And they try mm -hmm. to be perfect. And once they try to get perfect, oftentimes the result is that they, they, um, they get themselves so tense, they actually do worse than they would be if they were just loose. And you know, You're overthinking kind of, it way too much. For example. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it's the same, you might say, illustration of that more or less basic point that if you aim too high, then you're not even going to attain basic competency. Hmm. And Machiavelli is arguing that the whole political tradition of political thought has made this mistake, and I'm going to fix it. And he really, really sets the tone for a lot of modern thinkers, in fact. Um, and now I'd like to turn, whoops, turn to Locke. Because, okay, Machiavelli, I think you could say, sets the basic tone. And the turn away from trying to aim at the higher goals that had traditionally been understood to be of politics. Now, Locke is going to really articulate what that would mean in the sphere of the question of uh, the relation between church and state and religion and politics. Mm -hmm. And he's also, you know, for our purposes, very important because uh, he deeply, deeply influences the views of those men who would, let's say, be at the um, and the, the heart of the formation of our own country, you know, the American founders, um, especially men like Jefferson, uh, James Madison, who really, let's say, shaped our, the country's thought on these matters, um, though not, not only them, and they weren't the only ones, as well as, in fact, um, laying out a number of the ideas that would, in fact, make their way into um, the Catholic Church by, by way of ultimately... Um, you know, most immediately, Dignitatis Humanae at the Second Vatican Council. Mm. Um, now, to look to Locke, he, he's a very prolific writer. And he's one who um, tends to deal with themes in particular works and doesn't necessarily talk about them very much in other places. So his main... Uh, work that was most influential on looking at the origin and the purpose of politics was a book called The Second Treatise on Government, um, which, um, in fact, doesn't really touch on this question at all. This question he really went through systematically in a rather short work called The Letter Concerning Toleration, um, which, was pub which was written in 1685, though not published for some time afterwards. 
And just briefly, the context of that to be understood is basically England had been convulsed, like a lot of European countries, with a lot of religious warfare and upheaval for the previous 150 years, basically. Again, Henry VIII, um, having established himself as the head of the church in England in 1534, if I'm not mistaken, with the Act of Supremacy. Uh, then you had the back and forth between the, well, I guess we now could call them the Anglicans and the Catholics with Edward VI, his son, Mary, uh, Mary Tudor, his daughter, and then Queen Elizabeth, um, which led to all sorts of religious persecution of Catholics in the latter part of the 1500s. Then in the 1600s, you had some huge wars, but now no longer between Catholics and Anglicans, but rather between, let's say, the Anglicans and um, the, uh, to simplify matters, we could refer to them as the Puritans. Um, uh, so you had in the 1630s and 40s a back and forth a civil war, in fact, a pretty bloody one that saw the first uh, king put to death in modern times, um, Charles I, who was you know, put to death just a little bit outside of where John Locke was going to school at the time. Um, and he was put to death by uh, Oliver Cromwell, the head of the Puritans, also the head of the Parliament. And for about 10 years, you had the Puritans ruling the country until Cromwell, for his part, was um, suppressed and you had the reestablishment of the monarchy and kind of a swing back to the Anglicans. And it was pretty, and that, that actually had a huge impact on our own country's um, colonization because in the 1620s and 30s, you have the, the Puritans coming, you know, our mythical coming for the the Mayflower arriving at Plymouth Rock and the first Thanksgiving and all that, they were leaving because of religious persecution at the time because the, the Cavaliers, the, the Anglicans, were um, oppressing them. In the 1640s and 50s, you had a lot of Anglicans and Cavaliers coming to Virginia because they were being pushed out by the Puritans. You know, mm -hmm. uh, So anyways, so this he's writing this about 20 years after that and he has a lot of this history in his, in his mind as he's writing this. Now again, as with Machiavelli, He's, um, his, his purpose is particularly to lower the aim of politics. And he's very, very blunt about this. So and towards the beginning of the letter, he says um, the following. Sorry, I'm just going to read this quote aloud rather than try to remember it. So he says this. The commonwealth, by which he means civil politics, seems to me to be a society of men constituted only for the procuring, preserving, and advancing of their own civil interests. Civil interests I call life, liberty, health, and indolency of body, by which we could say comfort, and the possession of outward things such as money, lands, houses, furniture, and the like. Now, um, in so saying, that can easily be taken, and I think in some measure was intended to be taken, to understand that politics as such has no concern with the goods of the soul. If you think about the, the list of things that he gave there, life, liberty, uh, health, and indolency of body. There's no mention there of the excellence of the soul, whether you're on the natural level or certainly on the supernatural level. Um, and again, 
partly his aim there is to try to remove from politics what he sees as a source of great evil. Um, he has another passage, which I think I may well come back to, where he says that it is impossible to have peace or even friendship so long as there exists the doctrine that dominion, in other words, political rule, is founded in grace and that religion is to be propagated by force of arms. So there's actually two things he's saying there. That you cannot have peace so long as political rule depends on grace. By which he really means that it's a connected in any way with revelation. You know, because if we say, like the church does, that one of the goals of politics is precisely to aid men in helping to save their souls, that means the ruler has to be a Catholic at, at root. Mm-hmm. You know, because it doesn't make any sense. We wouldn't, you know, expect, I don't know, um, uh, the sultan, the, the Muslim ruler of the Turks. It's an example, actually, that Locke uses to say, okay, all right, everyone, I'm going to make sure you all are Catholic and you're all going to, you know, go, go to mass and stuff like that, even though I'm Muslim. You know, we wouldn't expect that. It just would not make any sense. And, of course, his example would out, undercut everything that he would be asking people to do. Um, and... You know, from his point of view, politics cannot be concerned with revealed truths nor provoke the salvation of souls, since this gives power in his judgment to men who can convince the multitude that they speak on behalf of God. And he goes through in a number of pla- in other areas in this letter saying that, look, you know, basically, um, in effect, um, you have different religious beliefs all through the world and different um, politicians basically being willing to impose or statesmen or rulers or tyrants or whatever, willing to impose their religious opinions on people and forcing them to accept it. And it just kind of, you know, becomes arbitrary where you happen to live. That's what you happen to believe. And that's unjust and it wouldn't be fitting for God. So can I take Locke's side, side, quote unquote, for a second? He is he's seeing all of this uh, chaos happening and he's Mm -hmm. blaming it all on religion. So this, this chaos is happening in the political sphere where there's uh, like a civil war and people are being put to death and changes in government and all this chaos. And he's putting the blame squarely on the side of the religious part of a religious government. And he's saying that can't happen anymore. This is see what's happening. We have to make sure that government is purely about man's liberty and health and, and happiness and furniture and mm-hmm. religion needs to stay out of it. Otherwise there's chaos. Mm-hmm. No. And that's, that's, I think an accurate assessment of what he's saying. And on a certain level, there is a parallel with what we were talking about before, as far as the church's teaching is. Whereas, but the difference being is this, that for the church, as St. Thomas kind of laid it out, this becomes a question of prudence, which right. does not touch on a principle so, in other words, when you can reasonably foresee that there's going to be greater evils coming out of, let's say, trying to insist on this truth, then it's better to engage in that toleration to permit the evils. Whereas Locke is basically making it a principle, saying that, right. in fact, um, uh, that it's not enough to say that it's a question of prudence. We have to 
make an argument on a level of a principle that the two should not mix. You know, and that and so, Foss, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, so so Locke's error here is that he's looking at the examples of people who are not acting in prudence. He's looking at religious leaders who are not acting in prudence, both on the sides of the Puritans and on the side of the the Cavaliers. And he's saying this. So therefore, religious re- religious people cannot uh, put their religion into government. Whereas, what the real problem problem is is not so much that religion and government shouldn't be together. It's that you need to have prudence in your governing, in mm-hmm. your religious governing, uh, and so uh, his his error is let's just throw this all out. Let's throw the baby out with the bathwater. When in reality, he should have said, "Good religious government is fine if it's acted on with prudence," like like Saint Thomas Aquinas is saying. And, and but instead, he's only looking mm-hmm. at the examples he saw, which were non prudential or imprudent measures. Correct. That, right. And- more or less, and, and he would go one step further to say and argue that it's not possible that these things be judged by uh, or governed by prudence. Um, okay. That it's just beyond human beings to act in a prudent manner on the one hand in these questions. And secondly, that more often than not, even people who would claim to be being governed by prudence are more often motivated by baser and let's say more um, um, self-interested motives. You know, mm-hmm. he goes through at great length saying that oftentimes these laws deprive people of their property and stuff like that, which is in fact, there he's talking about King Henry VIII, who basically stripped right. the church of all of its property. And he's saying, look, effectively, all this is about is not purity of doctrine or concern for people's salvation, Rather, it's just a means of enriching themselves. And it's a huge temptation, uh, he would argue, that's beyond the power of the average man, average ruler, to be able to avoid. Mm-hmm. So he, he, would, he would argue you can't solve this by prudence. Um, now, he, he basically kind of summarizes his argument in several ways. And I, I'd like, I think this is worthwhile to go through because this is at the root in which we see in Dignitatis Humanae a lot of these arguments. He, he basically states that civil power has no authority over religious matters at all. And he gives, um, we can kind of summarize them as three major arguments for that. So firstly, he claims that there's no commission uh, for a ruler, a political ruler, to, to be concerned on religious matters, whether it be by God. And he, he claims you know, neither uh, right nor art of ruling necessarily carries along with it the certain knowledge of other things and least of all of the true religion. So in other words, he says, God has not asked a political ruler to defend his interests, okay, which in fact just concretely is, goes against you know, that passage that we had from Cardinal P at the beginning where he's talking about our Lord saying, go and evangelize all nations, um, meaning you know, the, the rulers as well. And then he also says the people themselves cannot uh, give a ruler authority in religious matters because nobody can, um, let's say, uh, entrust another person with the care of his own soul. He then argues, and this is a central argument, that the means available for a civil ruler to, let's say, punish and to enforce certain behaviors are not proportionate to... um, the goal of trying to get people to convert. And what he means by that is the only 
power that a civil authority has is outward force. You know, we can fine you, we can imprison you, we can, let's say, um, subject you to civil, um, um, take away some of your civil liberties, have freedom of movement or whatever, but all those affect man's outward person. Whereas religion depends upon an interior ascent to the mind. You know, and, out, and he claims that outward force cannot uh, be sufficient to, to convert a person or to lead to that free ascent of the mind. And actually there it's on a certain level very similar to what St. Thomas Aquinas said, if, if we recall that, that quotation from the Summa. But at the same time, he, he applies it to the question of the outward force. Uh, and the public profession of, of any fellow's faith. And then lastly, he says that the government is not competent to judge religious truth. And I, I already kind of gave a quote from him that highlights that. Um, and he also says that, you know, every religion is orthodox to itself, to others erroneous and heretical. Whatsoever any church believes, it believes to be true. And contrary thereto, it pronounces to be error. Hmm. And his basic conclusion is that, look, there's no way for a government, a ruler, to be able to judge between these competing claims, because all, all of them say that they're true. And therefore, it's best to allow everybody who's convinced that it's true just to act in accordance with what he believes, as opposed hmm. to trying to prevent them. Um, and perhaps just to conclude with Locke, again, this is, this is uh, there's a lot more that can be said, really. But he also, in so doing this, he, he claims that a church basically is not to be understood as something founded by God. Rather, a church should be defined, especially from the point of view of the government, as nothing more than a voluntary association of men that are united by their judgment of what they believe to be pleasing to God. Okay. So it's voluntary, they agree to join it, and as a result, they have no power over the civil goods of anybody, you know, because they're concerned only with religious matters. And over and above that, because it's a voluntary association, they don't have any jurisdiction on anybody who's not a member of their organization, you know. Um, and that would include a civil ruler who happens to be a member of that religion. You know, and that's really, in a way, at a deep level behind the argument that, okay, I'm a Catholic, but publicly I can't, you know, oppose abortion. You know, I have to, you know, I have to do this. I can't impose my belief on other people. So the sense they think abortion's fine and, you know, it's, then I, I have to be willing to allow it. Okay. Yes. All right. So with that, I propose, if you think it's reasonable, to turn to Dignitatis Humanae. Um, which again is the, the document from Vatican II which touches on religious liberty. And again, it's a little out of context because it's the fruit of a long-standing battle within the church between, um, for lack of a better way of putting it, um, Catholics loyal to the, what the church's doctrine is and liberal Catholics that had gone back as early as in the 1800s. Um, there is, you know, some of these men have been discussed, I'm sure, in the Crisis podcast. Um, but you have men like Felicité de Lamnay, um, the Count de Montalembert, 
Monsignor Dupin-Loup, there's some famous liberal Catholics who argued on behalf, let's say, we need to adopt this question of religious liberty, basically. There's a very famous expression uh, used to kind of be a rallying cry. Uh, we want to be a free church in a free state. You know, just let mm -hmm. us be free, and we'll let everyone else be free. And that's all that we ask. Um, which, again, is not the mind of the church, and in fact was condemned several times through the 1800s. And in the 1900s, you had, again, that battle, as I said, kind of heating up right before the Vatican Council with men like Father Courtney, John Courtney Murray, who we talked about at some length in our first uh, podcast, as well as, um, you know, Cardinal Bea, and then Cardinal Ottaviani being just a very clear uh, example of one defending the traditional doctrine of the Church. So again, it's, this document is the fruit of this battle and ultimately the, the victory of the liberal Catholics, really. Um, so much so that we could, you know, just to quote Father, both Father Murray and another um, of these theologians, Father Congar, in stating that in Dignitatis Humanae, you have effectively a complete 180-degree change of what the Church had taught. So... Um, Father Murray, for his part, says, Almost exactly a century later, the Declaration on Religious Freedom, or Liberty, as we more normally say, seems to affirm as Catholic teaching that which Gregory XVI and Pius IX held as insanity, as a madness. And it's just a pretty strong admission, you know. And then Father Congar, being a little bit more precise in that, states that it cannot be denied that the Declaration on Religious Liberty does say materially something else than the Syllabus of 1864, which was published under Pius IX, and even says just about the opposite of Propositions 15, 77, and 79 of this document. Now, since he references those, I'll just read those. They're very short. Um, So to begin with um, number 15, and just as a very brief thing, for someone not familiar with this, the syllabus of 1864 condemns errors. So what I'm about to read is actually an error that's been condemned. So the paragraph 15 is, Every man is free to embrace and profess that religion which, guided by the light of reason, he shall consider true. Okay, so in other words, that's not the case. You know, men do not have a freedom nor a right to embrace whatever religion they happen to think is correct. And the other two that he mentions, the first one is, in the present day, it is no longer expedient that the Catholic religion should be held as the only religion of the state to the exclusion of all other forms of worship. Okay. And then lastly... Moreover, it is false, so this, sorry, this is number 79. Moreover, it is false that the civil liberty of every form of worship and the full power given to all of overtly and publicly manifesting any opinions whatsoever and thoughts conduces more easily to the corruption of morals and the minds of the people and to propagate the pest of indifferentism. Um, so again, that's an error that's been condemned. So, in other words, the church up until that time has said, in fact, allowing anybody 
any religion publicly to pra 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 practice their religion, whatever it may be, tends to damage people's morals, to corrupt their minds, and to lead to what they call indifferentism, which is this idea that it doesn't matter what religion you are. You know, people are fine, whatever they do, so long as they're a good moral person, they, they'll be fine. And again, which is, the, in fact, the precise attitude of more or less all Americans, and which, even if we don't necessarily accept it in principle, nevertheless, we may say, uh, subtly influences us in our dealings with other religions, you know, people of other religions, like they're nice guys and stuff like that. Um, so, again, these two men, Father Murray in particular was very influential, as well as Father Congar in this document. Um, they, they say what we produced is precisely those errors that were condemned, is effectively their admission. Um, and so here, what we can say is that um, the first thing and most fundamental thing that Dignitatis Humanus teaches is that there is a natural right for all men to practice publicly whatever religion they judge true. Okay, it's it's a natural right. So in the very first, oh, I'm sorry, the second paragraph of the document, it says this Vatican Synod declares that the human person has a right to religious freedom. This freedom means that all men are to be immune from coercion on the part of individuals or of social groups and of any human power in such wise that in matters religious, no one is to be forced in a act contrary to his own beliefs. Nor is anyone to be restrained from acting in accordance with his own beliefs, whether privately or publicly, whether alone or in association with others within due limits. Okay, again there, what we have effectively is um, a good summary of Locke's position. You know, that um, no one should be restrained from practicing publicly. Locke, for his part, in explaining that, what he says that the civil power should never prohibit somebody, says that by doing that you destroy the church, and that whatever this group of people and the religious beliefs, you destroy it. Um, because they have to practice publicly. And Vatican II, effectively, says the exact same thing. So men, this is Vatican II's um, uh, statement, they are also bound to adhere to the truth once it is known, and to order their whole lives in accordance with the demands of the truth. That's good, it's true. But then they go on. However, men cannot discharge these obligations in a manner keeping with their own nature unless they enjoy immunity from external coercion. Truth, however, is to be sought after in a manner proper to the dignity of the human person and his social nature. This inquiry is to be free, carried on with the aid of teaching or instruction, communication and dialogue, in the course of which men explain to one another the truth they have discovered or think they have discovered, in order thus to assist one another in the quest for the truth. So in other words, you have to allow you know, Lutherans, Muslims, to be able to practice publicly because they're searching for the truth. And that includes even to share the truth they think they found. So concretely, that means, uh, so you know, I grew up in Idaho Falls, and in fact, you, know, you live in Phoenix, and you have a good size Mormon community there, and they're very famous for you know, sending out their little missionaries, you know, those uh, charming young men. Um, and so the church is saying, those Mormons, missionaries, that's right, good on you. You know, you should share the truth that you think you've found. 
Um, and in fact, that's, that's led to the devastation of Catholicism in places like South America. You know, I had several um, friends of mine in high school who went on, as they call them, missions. And um, uh, at least two of my friends went to Argentina, which, you know, up until relatively recently was well over 90% Catholic. And they have all sorts of success drawing former Catholics into um, their false religion. And it's a terrible thing. But here Vatican II is saying that needs to happen. Um, and that's true even, even if, uh, let's say, somebody is not interested in Catholicism, not interested in the truth. The, the, the document uh, Dignitatis Humanae states explicitly, men cannot discharge these obligations to, to search for the truth in a manner in keeping with their own nature unless they enjoy immunity from external coercion as a psychological freedom. Therefore, the right to religious freedom has its foundation not in the subjective disposition of the person, but in his very nature, which means it's not that he's willing to accept the truth and is abiding by the truth, but rather by the very fact that he's a man. In consequence, the right to this immunity continues to exist even in those who do not live up to their obligation of seeking the truth and adhering to it. And the exercise of this right is not to be impeded, provided that just public order be observed. And this belongs, as Dignitatis Humanity would say, to communities as well as individuals. It's very explicit in the fourth paragraph of the document. Um, and so, even if they have zero interest in trying to discern the truth, and let's say um, to the point of trying to convert Catholics to what they believe, they still should be allowed to practice. And even if they're atheistic, they should be allowed to, to remain in their atheism. Um, and so they go through a long list. You know, Religious communities have to be free to teach. They have to be free to act publicly. They have to be free to proselytize, as I've already mentioned, as well as free to govern their interior conduct. They have to be free to strive to promote civil laws in accordance with their beliefs. And it's actually quite far, you know, which means that the Muslims, they have the, the right to say, we should have Sharia law. You know, we should promote Sharia law. That's great. You know, um, so long, of course, as they don't, in the course of that Sharia law, prevent others from practicing publicly their beliefs. You know, it's, it's a thing. So, again, there's, there's a deep debt of the thought um, that we see in Dignitatis Humanae to what Locke argues. Because, again, they're saying that you know, man is a social being by nature, and he comes together in what they believe that, of the truth that they've found. And they deserve to be able to um, practice that publicly and cannot be prevented from doing so. Wow. And so maybe just to kind of conclude, unless you have any other questions... Again, this is a very, very brief introduction, and I think we've gone perhaps a little longer than we intended, but even so, this is a very superficial uh, and uh, initial look at these questions. Um, but effectively, um, this lowering of the purposes of politics that is very much the goal and the project of, let's say, the Enlightenment and which finds its expression in this idea that politics should not be about, let's say, honoring our Lord, or um, let's say, protecting this, the faith of souls, 
um, is diametrically opposed to the mind of the church, the mind of our Lord Jesus Christ himself, you know, which is precisely the fact that man is one being and that there should be a unity between his life in this world and his, the civil needs that go along with that and that which pertains to his salvation. And that God being, as Leo XIII in many places says, the author of society as well, has a right to be worshipped by society and has a right to ask of society to collaborate with his church, both to honor him and to protect the souls that we can really say are entrusted to their care. Um, and, you know, kind of go back to the, that beginning epi- anecdote, you know, that's why ultimately, let's say, something like the First Amendment is more, you know, deeply opposed to the mind of God, both because it's what, in fact, makes possible something like abortion. Abortion is only possible when you really remove God um, from political life, and also because it's uh, this. Um, it goes against precisely uh, that statement of our Lord: "Go forth and preach to all nations, baptizing them." In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. He wants the nation to be baptized and, as such, to be Catholic. You know, so, you know, it's just like an atheist. I'm a, it, the sin of an atheist, his denial of God, is more offensive and hateful to God than, um, let's say, a sin of an impurity that he commits because it's, it's a direct attack on him. Whereas the impurity, there's something, you know, it's, it's wrong, yes, um, but there's something that's somewhat in keeping with seeking a good of some kind or another. Um, and this is fascinating because the, the secularization of society started early. You know, it started, like you said, with, with Machiavelli. It started with Locke and then flowed into the French Revolution, the American Revolution, etc. So mm-hmm. this the secularization was there, but the church just hopped on this bandwagon. and Relatively recently. Yeah. Relatively recently and then made it all okay. Um, okay, with terrible, <laughs> terrible effects for souls. Yeah. Like you know, like I was mentioning, you really see that in you know, Archbishop Lefebvre used to weep uh, in recounting that not a few countries that had still been Catholic, like Spain, like certain parts of Switzerland, many countries in South America were compelled by the Vatican to introduce religious liberty, with right. a huge, huge loss of Catholics. You know. To Protestants, like Protestants, and not only Mormons, but evangelicals are growing immensely in South America, which means that people are being taken away from the true faith. And of course, outside of that, just it completely uh, innervates um, uh, Catholics and nations from fighting against the reigning atheism of our day. Um, and in a sense, you could you could almost say the Dignitatis Humanae is making the same exact mistake that Locke made, where they're oh, saying, yeah. "Well, we need to we need to make everything." You know, we have to take religion out of it because we're being too harsh. Um, we're being too, you know, we're, we're being too pushy with with Catholicism, and we mm-hmm. need to let people have that inherent dignity of being able to practice whatever they want. When, when that's not the issue, you know, there is a problem with people being overly zealous, religious mm-hmm. people being oh, overly sure. zealous in the public sphere. Yeah, that happens. Mm-hmm. But the the way to fix that is not to just totally remove religion from the public sphere. The way to remove that is to use religion in the public sphere properly. Mm-hmm. And, that's exact. That's that's very true. And again, I think it's good to take one step further, and maybe to is that the first care. You know, let's say, 
or maybe maybe actually just to begin this by saying to use a quote from Leo the Thirteenth, where he says, "There's been enough talks about the rights of men. It's time now to talk about the rights of God." <laughs> and um, you know that the first perspective we should have is that we owe to God not only as individuals but as nations um, this recognition and this worship. And um, yes, there are times when, due to circumstances, certain aspects of that can't be fully realized. But that still remains our goal. You know, our goal is that Christ, the, the nation, be Christian; that it be that Christ be King. Um, you know, practically for us, realistically, this this goes back to my uh, my thesis in college. You know, because I, where I started, I had to give a thesis defense. I'm like, oh, can the can um, is the First Amendment compatible with Catholicism? I'm like, nope. <laughs> you know, we have to get rid of yeah. it. You know, yeah. and obviously that's that's a long way in the future, you know, relatively speaking. Um, but uh, but that's it. You know, to to really pursue to allow Christ to be King because He deserves it, and because and to through Him worship His Father as a nation because it's due to Him, um, because He is the Author of all that we are. And then secondarily, yes, to, to save souls and to be prudent and not, let's say, making it harder for souls to come to him. Well, uh, we, we have a long way to go. Uh, we have a lot of work to do to <laughs> recapture uh, traditional thinking in, in what we, in you know, the church and in the states. Uh, that's what I kind of keep thinking about. It's, it's a long road ahead, but uh, mm-hmm. it's something that we all have As one priest on. I know says, as one priest I, say, I know says, he's, he's always saying 200 years, you have to remember it's 200 years before things start getting better and sometimes you know on discouraging days i'm like yeah i'm probably more like a millennium (laughs) it'll take time well but obviously god's in command so right but so be it you know you you look back at medieval times and they're building cathedrals that they're never going to see finished exactly that's what we have to do we have to have that attitude yep so well father thank you for taking the time to go through this um this was uh fascinating discussion about about religious liberty and and again the work that we have to do but this is what we're doing we're doing this work right now um and and that's that's a beautiful thing so thank you for your time father we appreciate it very much it's been a great pleasure thank you very much andrew thank you thank you for listening to and watching episode 28 of our crisis in the church series here on the sspx podcast coming up in the next episodes of the crisis in the church series we'll be talking about ecclesiology and collegiality These are likely some of the least well-known of the Vatican II errors by laypeople, but they do play a pivotal role in how the church is structured in the 21st century, and it leads to major crises like we've been seeing today in Germany. If you have a question on the topic of the crisis, please feel free to ask it at sspxpodcast.com slash crisis. Please share this episode with someone who you think might enjoy it, and if they don't know what a podcast is, please show them so that they can take advantage of all our episodes. And finally, if you have the ability to set up a monthly recurring donation of 5 or 10 or $20 on sspxpodcast.com, it would help us immensely to complete this Crisis in the Church project. Until next week, thank you for listening and God bless you.